Hi, everybody, and welcome to That's Life, the show where we love our job but sort of wished we worked for ways. Good afternoon, folks, and thanks for listening. I am Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, and general manager here at the Nachum Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday at 2 p.m. as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. Coming to you from the drenched home of the Nachum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side, I'm joined by my handy-dandy partner, Avrami. What's up, Avram? I'm good. I'm wondering if it was foolish that I didn't uh, bring food into the studio and was hoping that I'd pick some up later. Yeah, by the way, I don't know. I mean, it's whatever. We, we've had a couple of hours here already, but um, I'm getting hungry, and we're going to have to draw straws as to who leaves the studio. Or have someone bring it in. <laughs> and pay extra for a tip. If you are a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break for, from your day to tune in. And if you are a returning listener, thanks, as always, for making us part of your day. If Miriam L. Wallach once a week is just not enough for you, do what listener Steve Myers does. You can friend me on Facebook, send me an invite on LinkedIn, shoot me an email, miriam at nachamsegel.com. I will not respond to you during the show, but I will make sure to get back to you afterwards. Also, please follow us on Twitter, nachamsegelnet, all one word. And please check out my piece this week in the OU Life. That's ou.org slash life. You can read my new home of my column, entitled Dear That's Life. The title of the show has the same title as the blog. I'm a one-hit wonder. What can I tell you? Many thanks to the 26 people or so who posted my canadal piece on Facebook. Let's see how many people post this week's piece. Let's go to our favorite segment. What does the fortune cookie say? By the way, Avram, I just want to give you a heads up. I may be introducing a new segment today on the show. I know you're looking at me like you have no time for that, but uh, we may have to make time. Here we go. Fortune cookie of the day. You know what? Worst comes to worst, we're going to eat all the fortune cookies so we never have to leave the studio. Good luck is the result of good planning. Well, so far you and I have planned poorly this afternoon. Let's take care of some business here at today's national holidays. It's Career Nurse Assistance Day. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it makes less sense to me, more sense to me than Queen's official birthday. That's all it says, Queen's official birthday. Not as in the borough, not as in the Queen of England. Or it could be as in the Queen of England. I don't know. I don't know that she has a Facebook page where she's posting her birthday, but I'm sure our Rummy's going to give us a little bit of uh, info on that, hopefully by the end of the program. Wait, what was it called again? Queen's official. apostrophe S, capital Q, E-E-N apostrophe S, official birthday. What do I know? By I'm the way, it. you know what today is, though? Hmm. 613, just saying. Tomorrow is also Family History Day. It's Flag Day and... Uh, it's National Bourbon Day, so uh, do what you got to do. All right, there you go. There you go. There you go. Great. I'm becoming uh, more and more into bourbon over these past uh, couple of years, so I will make sure to uh, call my friend Batsalo, and we will celebrate. <laughs> Did you see what I posted last week, that piece on, uh, from the Times about how whiskey, uh, whiskey makers, whiskey distillers, I don't know what the right word is, are courting the uh, kosher market? Because they know we have kiddish, and sometimes second kiddish, and sometimes third kiddish. It's like the <laughs> hobbits, only Jewish. <laughs> We also have Shalom Zachars. I mean, there are numerous opportunities to imbibe, though, of course, we ask you to imbibe responsibly. Um, I would like to do Crazy Follows Me Everywhere because I have two very cute little short coffee stories to get to. Um, but I also want to make sure that we get our, that we uh, get our first guest on the air because um, there is so much to talk to Rabbi Steve Berg about, whether it's um, the newly posted information, or I should say the information that was posted last week about Alicia Keys, whether it's talking about Rifka Abbey, because who knows we, if we can't just talk about Rifka Abbey for 30 minutes, we can. But I do want to make sure that I introduce our new um, segment. Our new segment is, uh, I should say, developed out of a whole thing that happened with my kids, as things usually do in my life. I think we're going to call it hashtag this. Okay, we're going to have a new segment called Hashtag This. I'm going to introduce a new hashtag to the show each week. Even if it's not new to the world, it'll be new here at That's Life. This one evolved from the parade show because I did make sure during the parade show to humiliate as many kids of families that I knew as possible by, you know, screaming their name on the air. Yeah, I heard. Yeah, I did a good job. Thank you. So, um, and I also made sure to humiliate, humiliate as many of my family members as possible because it's an equal opportunity show. Anyway... Uh, in discussing this with my kids afterwards, they were success- successfully humiliated, so chalk that off my to-do list. But the hashtag now is most embarrassing mom ever. So now I am able to post little snippets on Facebook 
um, how I have recently humiliated one of my kids and hashtag it most embarrassing mo- mom ever. So I, uh, by the way, make sure you know embarrassing is two R's, not just uh, two R's and one S. So when you post your embarrassing mom moment, make sure to spell it correctly. Otherwise, we won't be able to link. In addition, um, if you have any suggestions for a new hashtag to bring to That's Life, please do me a favor and email it to me, miriam at nachamsegel.com, miriam at nachamsegel.com. But let me get quickly to um, the crazy follows me everywhere. I have two quick coffee stories. Yes, so much of my life revolves around coffee. If it doesn't revolve around my kids, it revolves around coffee. Anyway, the first thing that happened is that um, Matze Shabbos, after fighting a migraine, I desperately needed some caffeine. And we don't keep caffeine in the house simply because caffeine and I usually do not mix. But nevertheless, I needed some caffeine to help break this cycle. So I went into a Dunkin' Donuts and wanted to get, and I keep in mind, Matze Shabbos, it's already late. So I didn't really want to drink a whole cup of regular coffee. That would have been bad, but I figured I would have half a cup. Anyway, I went into a Dunkin' Donuts, and I ordered a small latte. And I said to the gentleman behind the counter, is it possible that I could have a half-calf small latte, meaning half decaf, half regular with the espresso? And he said, no, that is not possible. That is impossible. And I said, is that because there's only one shot in the in the latte and he said yes that is correct now obviously you can't split a shot but if you are making a latte with two shots you can have one decaf and one regular but this product is only made with one shot so i said okay fine let's just make it regular i figured i would have half a cup and then call it a day anyway he looks at me and he says but if you'd like i can also add a decaf shot i looked at him i said why would i want you to add a decaf shot in the coffee if i'm only looking for it to be half calf in the first place and he looked at me he completely did not understand but I thought it was absolutely hysterical that to him this was completely logical and I thanked him but no thanked him and walked out of the store now I was with my husband and a friend of mine at the time and she did not appreciate the humor in it because she's not a coffee drinker when we then met up with a second friend I who is an avid coffee drinker I quickly told her the story and she cracked up confirming to me that you need to have certain friends for certain situations. Anyway, the second coffee story was what happened yesterday, which I posted on Facebook, and numerous people have have tried to figure out where I ordered that latte in question, but I would not reveal the source. What happened was, is I walked in yesterday to uh, get a latte, and I said, hi, and the gentleman said, hi, may I take your order? And I said, hi, I'd like a small decaf skim latte, please. And he read it back and he said, no problem, small decaf skim latte. And what kind of milk do you want with that? Right. And then I looked at him and I said, skim? And he said, okay. And then he stopped for a second and realized what had just happened. So, you know, it's amazing to me how many funny things can happen around coffee. I thought the funniest coffee thing that was going to happen this week was – when I went into Starbucks to get an iced coffee, and they asked me, of course, what my name was. And as I always say in Starbucks, my name is Mary, except on the cup, they wrote Marie. And for some reason or another, I really take it very personally when they mess up my Starbucks name. Anyway, that's enough of my ranting and raving about coffee. You are listening to That's Live here on the Nachum Siegel Network, and I am joined by my first guest. Rabbi Steve Berg is the Eastern Director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. The Simon Wiesenthal Center is a global Jewish human rights organization that confronts anti-Semitism, hate and terrorism, promotes human rights and dignity, stands with Israel, defends the safety of Jews worldwide, and teaches the lessons of the Holocaust for future generations. Rabbi Berg is a graduate of YU, and following his ordination, and I should say, and of Ritz, which where he received smicha, following his ordination, he embarked on a 22-year career at the OU, that is that is a commitment, Rabbi Berg, um, becoming the youngest international director of NCSY. And through NCSY, Rabbi Berg became one of the, the foremost leaders in Jewish teen engagement and led an organization that served 35,000 teens worldwide. He also served as the managing director of the OU and serves on the board of directors of Yeshiva University High Schools and is a member of the Board of Education of the Rosenbaum Yeshiva of North Jersey Elementary School. He lives in New Jersey with his wife, and six kids, and is a fan favorite 
at the Nachum Siegel Network. Hello, Rabbi Berg. Hi, how are you, Mary? Thank God, how are you? Good, so, great, thank God. I mean, can we just take a moment to talk about Rivka Abbey? <laughs> 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 I mean, we could take 30 moments to walk, talk about Rivka Abbey, but recently, for those listeners who do not know, Rivka Abbey was included in the Jewish Week's 36 Under 36, where 36 um, very up-and-coming or already established members of the Jewish community are highlighted for um, their work and for what will soon be their future work. And Rabbi Berg is the um, the man behind Rivka Abbey, I would have to say, and she will say that she will say that wholeheartedly is that she looks to you as one of her most important role models in her life. Well, look, she's an inspiration to everyone that knows her. I mean, she's just a, an incredible young person, done a lot of great work in uh, Israel advocacy. Um, I had the great merit to to be there the first time she walked into the White House. Wow. Um, and you know, to see the look on her face. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she's made a lot of friends. Jared Bernstein is the former Jewish liaison to the White House. It remains, you know, very close with her, and so do a lot of, of other folks. You know, she's going to Israel next year, but when she comes back, you know, we're expecting big things. I know. It's, um, you know, I refer to her as Mighty Mouse. <laughs> that's a good that's a good description. Thank you. And if I could find a Mighty Mouse, I would actually buy one for her because, of course, she's too young to at all I'll get the reference. eBay for that. Yeah, I was about to say some, like, old-school toy reseller. But um, she really is, uh, to say that she's an inspiration is true because she's not just an inspiration to other kids, other teens. She's an inspiration to adults. She serves as a role model for people who are just, I don't know, for lack of a better word, lazy. Yeah, look, I think her passion is infectious, and I think that uh, everyone, you know, whether it be teens that see here as a peer or it's all of us that see someone so young with that kind of energy. You know, look, a lot of times when you're doing this kind of work, you, you feel battered and bruised, and it's not always simple. Right. And you need to keep plugging away, and, you know, you can just get great energy from, from so many of the young people that are involved. Can you say that also about Alicia Keys? And I know it's a little bit of a strange um, connection between one or the two, but Alicia Keys who is a singer-songwriter, has made major uh, headlines lately in the fact that she has refused to participate in many um, many an entertainer's boycott of Israel, and she's continuing to perform on July 4th and has been acknowledged by the Wiesenthal Center for her strength. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I, I just flew back from Los Angeles. We had our, our banquet in Los Angeles, and, and Wiesenthal Center is an interesting uh, organization, you know, we're, we're a global human rights organization, but we are absolutely unapologetic about our Zionism and our commitment to the state of Israel. And uh, in, in Hollywood, and we're the only national Jewish organization based in Los Angeles, and um, a lot of our clientele is Hollywood. And we we just honored uh, Jim Janopoulos, the head of Fox Studios, on Tuesday night. And, and one of the things Trevor Hire talked about quite strongly in a room packed with almost a thousand people from the industry, um, he talked about Alicia Keys and her bravery and how much we support her and have to look up to her. And, and it's interesting, a lot of our work is not necessarily focused in Hollywood. It's focused globally, but here's uh, a part of our work that's really, you know, the Hollywood boycott is, is gets tremendous attention, right. more than so than anything else. Right. Uh, and she's a, a brave young woman, and, and we highlighted that fact at our dinner. Can we talk about Jim Janopoulos for a second? I mean, sure. He, um, as the, uh, di- as the, the title is Director of Fox Studios? He's a CEO, yeah. CEO of, of Fox Studios. There is, um, I, I would say that there's safety in numbers in terms of the number of Jews who are involved in Hollywood, whether it's Katzenberg or anyone else, but he's he's Greek. Right, correct. <laughs> correct. So, it, uh, you know, it was really funny. Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg's on a board in the last 20 years. has has basically helped us run our dinner and worked very hard as a chairman. And, uh, you know, we gave uh, Jim a, a menorah. Right. And uh, Jeffrey said, he said, you know, this is going to look really good in a Greek household. You know, <laughs> the, the irony was not lost there. Right. Uh, but he got up, and if anyone could, could read his speech, I mean, it was his speech was so moving. Uh, and he talked about Simon Wiesendahl and who he was and, and the fact that he didn't forget the, the members of the show on and how all of us, it's so easy for us, especially, you know, talking to folks from Hollywood. You know, he said it's so easy for us to just kind of look the other way. He said, but we have we have that responsibility. And he's a terrific guy in general on many, many boards, very charitable. Uh, just a real, as, as Jeffrey Katzenberg said uh, in Greek, as they call it, a real mensch. <laughs> yeah, that was a great quote. Yeah. But if you look at a general, if you look at somebody like Katzenberg or Spielberg, you understand where their passion or where their support of the Wiesenthal Center comes from. Or in, in quote-unquote, speaking the truth and making sure that survivors of the show are not forgotten. But where does the inspiration for a guy like Janopoulos come from? 
Look, I, th- I think what the Wiesenthal Center has done is, is demonstrate that, that global human rights applies to all of us. Uh, it's not just the Jews. It's really everyone. And, you know, if, you know, years ago when suicide bombing started in Israel and everyone kind of looked the other way, well, now you have suicide bombing all over the world. Um, and, and I think that that is the message, the strong message of the Wiesenthal Center, which is uh, this affects all of us. You know, I think one of the one of the really strong comments that Rabbi Heyer made at the dinner, and he's made this many, many times, talking about peace with the Palestinians and talking about how you know everyone is ignoring Gaza and the fact that Hamas is in charge there. And uh, he he had a statement there, um, which I thought just was very powerful. He said, he said, you know, it's not apartheid. Right when you don't talk to those who wish to destroy you, right. Jews don't talk to neo Nazis, African Americans don't talk to the KKK, Latinos don't sit down with numbers USA, and the United States doesn't talk to Al Qaeda. You know, and so as long as Hamas has in its charters they want to destroy Israel, right. and and that's I think the the greatness of the Wiesenthal Center is that we make that case that it's no different and and than than what's going on around the world, and I think people intelligent people respond to that. In terms of what's going on around the world, by the way, if people are, not, if any of our listeners are not friends with Rabbi Berg on Facebook, and I'm not saying this to be funny, <laughs> you really should friend him, and for good reason, because there is con- there's a constant um, tab being kept on your Facebook page of crazy things going on all over the world that really make my eyes pop out of my head a couple of times a day, and I think that this morning's po- one of this morning's posts, I should say. Um, about this new app that allows reporting of anti-Semitic and racist incidents in France mm-hmm. that's been launched mm-hmm. it, um, by an, a French NGO just threw me for a loop. Yeah, and, and, and the truth is, uh, in Europe today, uh, it's, it's, it's a real tough, tough situation, uh, too, what's going on in Hungary. Uh, with the, and, and these are anti-Semites you know, embedded in the government, you know, in Greece for sure, um, and it's, just, it's getting worse. And... Uh, we have an office in France. We have an office in Israel. We have an office in South America. We're globally, and um, it's, there's scary stuff going on out there. What is what is the? Th- I mean, you have been at um, the Wiesenthal Center for how long now? About six months. And, and in six months, mm-hmm. tell me what the craziest or the most shocking moment that you've had. And I'm sure, and I'm going to give you a little time to think about that. So I'll talk <laughs> for a second because I'm sure that there have been a number of I, I've seen it all moments, and then something else tops it. You know, it, 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 I tell you what scares me the most out of, out of you know, my experience the last couple of months, and, and that's what's going on online, mm. out of hate and, and terrorism that's going on online. Um, you know, the fact that you can, you can uh, you know, just join, jump, up, jump on a Twitter feed for Al-Qaeda right. and get their magazine called Inspire and learn how to build a bomb like the Boston Bombers. Right. And, you know, it, it's fairly simple to do. You know, I would tell anyone, go on Twitter and just type in Adolf Hitler or, or, or Eichmann or Mengele or any of those guys. And you'll see hundreds of people tweet, tweet on their names. I'll tell you, one of them really, really hit me, and I mentioned this on, on Fox recently, um, which was one of the, the names that popped up was Dictator Hitler. Right? There's a, a Twitter feed, uh, Dictator Hitler. And so I went on there. It was actually the morning that I went on Fox, and I just went to see what was going on. And, and there was a two-word tweet there with a link, uh, and it said, She's hot, right? So you expect that that's some kind of online porn or something. Right. When you click on it, it's a picture of the crematorium. <gasps> and this person, you know, that's... That's their life's mission to, you know, kind of figure out how to get us back in there. And uh, what's amazing about it, I'll tell you what blew me away was, you know, so, okay, some crazy guys like, like that has got, you know, 40 or 50 followers, right? Oh. 160,000 followers no for Dictator Hitler. Uh, 160,000 people have clicked on uh, the psychopath's uh, Twitter feed and are getting his, uh, his, his hateful material. So that's, I think that's what's blowing me away. I don't, I think that, I had this conversation recently with Congressman Rush Holt with some other uh, politicians. I, I think the definitions of free speech have to be reworked because I think what's going on online um, is, is very, very, very dangerous. It is tantamount to screaming fire in a crowded theater, which is the landmark case that goes back to the, um, the, the guarantee of free speech in the first place. Absolutely. You know, if you talk to terrorism folks, you know, people, anti-terrorism folks, and and you say to them what the, what the biggest fear is, they'll always tell you the lone wolf. You know, it's just the right. guy that grabs a gun and does something. And, and I said, every single case where there's been a lone wolf, where someone has gone out and done damage, I, I will guarantee it that he was on social media every night for the past year before he did that mm-hmm. act, being encouraged, figuring out what to do, and, and, and finding you know, other psychopaths to talk to. And, and terrorist organizations, forget that they applaud the lone wolf, they bank on the lone wolf. 
Sure, sure. Their their job is to you know that's okay. This magazine called Inspire. Their their job is to inspire people to go out there and, and hurt people. And then on the flip side, you posted something yesterday about a an increase in Holocaust memorial centers around the world. Yeah, JTA had a had a great article. I actually know the reporter. He's a real good guy. We we, we had a whole talk about it, um, where there are more Holocaust memorials popping up, and and we you know we were going back and forth trying to figure out why that was, and I think one of the things that people are coming to terms with right now are. Um, that there aren't that many Holocaust survivors left. And uh, I read an article recently that 20% of Holocaust survivors suffer from Alzheimer's. And uh, it's it's very tough. You know, I've been to Poland probably 15 times um, with different trips, and we've always had a survivor with us, and and, and that just totally enhanced the experience. And I think there's a certain realization that, that it's starting to shift, you know, over the next 20 to 30 years. Um, and these memorials are going to be really important. I could tell you that the Holocaust Museum in, in uh, Washington um, has become much, much more important. Right. I, I, I'm still stunned by, the, by, by what you said before um, with the, uh, the hashtag, what was it, Dictator Hitler? Or, yeah. I, 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 she's hot. I mean, I, am, I can't move past that. Because when I'm looking at yeah. just no to bring both I mean to bring both points together you have 160,000 crazy followers of an ins, uh, of a madman and then you have the the voice of of truth or reason in the the uh, the growth of these Holocaust memorials around the world and you know there the uh, I should say the liberal Democrat in me would say ah so the 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 light of justice is um is, is not only still has a stronghold but more than that is maybe having a stronger voice than ever to quiet down those who are still haters and then there's the realist in me that says give me a break well you know look i think it's a numbers thing meaning if you have a memorial you'll get x amount of people and, and it'll be wonderful for them but the amount of people that are just plopping themselves down online um is in the billions and and that's really where everything is going on. And you know, the Wisconsin Weasel Center for the last 15 years, every year has put out a, um, a study on digital hate um, and terrorism, where we've we've talked about all these websites, literally from the first website on. Now it's totally out of control. And we recently raided um, some of the social sites. You know, we actually gave Facebook an A minus because Facebook actually, if you complain, we'll we'll do something about it. We gave Twitter an F because Twitter wow. will do nothing. They consider it all free speech. And um, it's a, it's a huge problem. It's nice to hide behind the for- First Amendment as a huge uh, iron dome of sorts, isn't it? Yeah, and look, I think it's. I don't think the founding fathers ever envisioned scenarios like we have today, and I think it's it's got to be rethought very carefully, obviously. Um, but you know, I, I said to someone, you know, when I was when I was on Fox, so they said to me, they said, uh, they said, well, you know, well, where do you draw the line? I said, look, I'll just tell you very simply. If someone says I hate you, okay, they say they hate you. If someone says I hate you and I'd like to kill you, I think a line's been crossed. Right. You know, and that's that's what we need to start looking at. It's funny that um, the word hate at the Wallach household is not a word I will allow used because to me it is a um, a, a great generalization of something that represents something much, much more. So if I have somebody, if even if somebody else's kid comes over to my house and says, you know, I hate green beans, I'm like, no, you just don't like them. We're listening to Rabbi Steve Berg as he joins us here on That's Life. He's the Eastern Director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center that has a number of family activities uh, available at the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Midtown for families who are looking for something to do between school and camp that isn't going to Madame Tussauds. And I'm not saying that to knock Madame Tussauds. There's a lot of fun to be done in Times Square. But there's something about the Simon Wiesenthal Center and taking your family and your kids to see things from a different perspective that is so eye-opening that I highly recommend it to everyone. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we've got a museum here on 42nd Street. We, we have our main museum in L.A. We have one on 42nd, and we're in the midst of building one right now in, uh, in the heart of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, and, but we, we love people to come down here. It, it's a really interactive place. It's not your typical museum where you kind of walk around and you kind of just see artifacts and stuff. Um, there's a lot of video, a lot of media, a lot of interactive uh, things. You know, we get uh, tons of school groups uh, throughout the week here. We also get a lot of law enforcement. We do a lot of training um, uh, for them. And uh, it's just really, really interesting place. We're, we're two blocks of the U.N., so that, that's kind of why we're situated here. We're also an NGO right. um, at the U.N., 
And um, so we got a real, real interesting mix of, of folks to come down here. Speak to me for a second about the law enforcement that comes to the Wiesenthal Center in Midtown and why they, why they come. Well, you know, look, we're, we're Museum of Tolerance. That's that's kind of the name, and, and and we're all about people being able to get along. And I think one of the challenges of law enforcement is you're out there and you're engaging all kinds of different people, and and how do you do that? You know, how do you engage them? How do you speak to them? Um, you know, how do you engage each other? You know, uh, and, and I think that for law enforcement, that's a real struggle to where to draw the line. Um, you know, a lot of people are having conversations with us now in terms of stop and frisk and some of the other issues, not to to really say one way or the other whether it's right or wrong. But but, but the question is, you know, are, are officers being being trained and attuned to how to deal with all kinds of diverse uh, people? And we offer a tremendous amount of training uh, for law enforcement all around the world. Literally, uh, comes us for that training. Um, and we give that unique perspective. You also, by the way, posted something, just looking at your Facebook page, um, something that I, I realized I wanted to bring up with you was the British MP who apologized for calling the IDF soldier a bloody Jew. Right. I mean, I, I, what's the what's the point? What's the point in the apology? And I, mean, I and I mean that and I mean that sincerely. What uh, is the point in the apology? Look, in, in our work, um, and our work is very complicated, complex, and, and we're literally all over the world. But we have to call people on the carpet, and um, you know, it, it starts with calling people names, and it ends with with more serious things. And you know that's our that's our job to basically say, look, you were out of bounds. You can't do that. You need to apologize. It was a sincere apology. It was a not sincere apology. That I can't tell you. Um, but the bottom line is, they need to know that we're watching and that we're not going to. You know, this is not you know the middle the middle ages where you could just you know kick a Jew in in the street and and walk the other way and no one will say boo. Um, and that's that's why you know we are literally. Um, all around the globe, basically calling anti-Semites on the carpet, saying, you know, you, you know, you got to back off, you got to apologize, you got to enact legislation, or whatever it is. We we have a we have a, a duty to, and, and and I would tell you even more so. I think in the United States, to a certain extent, we have a very strong Jewish community, but around the globe, you know, we're much smaller numbers, and that's why I think we spend a lot of our time in Europe and South America and other places, uh, because a lot of those Jewish communities um, need so to speak, big brothers to, to help, you know, stick up for him. See, I think that's the message. And, and, and for, a, for a very important takeaway, and I, and I mean this sincerely, is that the icker here is not the apology itself. I think that the icker here is when the Wiesenthal Center says exactly what you just said. We're watching, and you are accountable. And whether or not your apology means anything or was heartfelt is semi-relevant. Your message to the world is that anti-Semitism will not go unchecked. Your comments... Are, you are going to be held to your comments, and we are watching. You know, we, we, have, a, we have a letter, a fascinating letter in Los Angeles, and we have a copy of it here, um, from Adolf Hitler that he wrote uh, 20 years before the Holocaust when he was in the Army. His job in the Army was after World War I, they had German soldiers coming back from Russia and just to you know, deprogram them from whatever influence the communists had on them. And he, he wrote about the Jewish issue, and he talked about how, you know, there was this emotional approach through pogroms, but really what you need is more of an intellectual, state-sponsored approach to deal with the Jewish issue. And, and the reason we paid a lot, we raised a lot of money, we paid a lot of money for the letter uh, to have it on display, but the reason we felt it was, it was so important to have it on display is to show, here is a guy 20 years before the Holocaust who telegraphed exactly what he wanted to do. He wrote this letter. This was even before Mein Kampf. He wrote Mein Kampf. And what did everyone say? This guy's a bully. He's a hoodlum. He's a joke. He's a clown, right? And everyone just kept, like, poo-pooing it. And, and then we walked into the Holocaust. And I just I think our mentality has to be different. And I think that, that another post that you had put on where I, I forget who warned of a potential Syrian Holocaust was, um, uh, was something else that you had posted. Sure. Sure, you know, and this is what I was talking about. I think the, the Wiesenthal Center's approach, of, uh, it's, it's global. It's in all these countries. Right. It can happen anywhere and everywhere, whether it be Rwanda, whether it be Darfur, whether it be all these things. It's not just a Jewish or an Israel problem. You know, the, the bullies of the world have to be called out. Right. Well, Rabbi Steve Berg of the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Manhattan, I thank you very much for joining us. And um, I, I hope that you and I find more people in common in that 36 under 36 as the years go on. I'm sure we will. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you, Miriam. Thank Take you care. so much. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am Miriam L. Wallach, and I am joined by my second guest, who has an unbelievable discovery in a uh, pretty shocking area. I guess not if you're shocking, not shocking if you do what he does for a living. 
Professor Stuart Miller is the professor of Hebrew History and Judaic Studies at UConn, the University of Connecticut at Storrs. He is also the academic director of UConn's Center for Judaic Studies and Contemporary Jewish Life and is the chair of the Hebrew and Judaic Studies section in the Department of Literature, Cultures, and Languages. Professor Miller earned his Ph.D. in Near Eastern Studies and History at NYU in 1980 with distinction and before, before coming to UConn in 82. He was a visiting professor of Jewish Studies in the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. Good afternoon, Professor Miller. Good afternoon, Miriam. So tell me, not too many Jews there at Notre Dame, huh? No, there weren't that many. (laughs) (laughs) Were you like the token Jew on campus? There has to be Uh, one. Well, I was the, uh, really the the representative for the study of Judaism in the Department of Theology. This was back in 1982, and it was a big deal at the time, but Notre Dame has uh, continued to foster study of Judaic studies uh, since those days. Well, I will I, I will tell you that the article which um, brought me to you in the first place in terms of revealing or discovering more parts of our uh, the the Jewish life or the Jewish experience in America since um, beyond our expectations totally threw me for a loop. And just so that people understand what we're talking about, because obviously we want our listeners to have a clue, um, Professor Miller is part of the excavation of a of a of a shul a, a remarkable archaeological find is the way it's put in the article of a shul in old chesterfield connecticut dating back to the 19th century to the late 19th century which in an area which is old chesterfield which had a, basically an agricult was an agricultural community and discovered with this shul was a remarkable find correct and discuss, just discuss before our listeners hear what that find is. Discuss for a second how you were brought to this spot in the first place. Okay, well, well just a, a, a little background. Okay. Um, the site has actually been maintained by the uh, New England Hebrew farmers of the Emanuel Society, who are descendants of the original community that lived there. And uh, they were regrouped uh, by Nancy Savin, who is a descendant. She is the president of the organization. She lives in New York. And they've done a remarkable job at uh, at ensuring that the site will remain uh, a historically preserved site in the state of Connecticut. It's the 24th state archaeological preserve since, 19, since 2007, and now is on the National Register of Historical Places uh, for Connecticut. And uh, that's all relevant because uh, that brought into the picture the state archaeologist, my colleague uh, Nicholas Bellantoni, and uh, we're friends, and we were actually talking about doing an excavation in Italy. I've been involved uh, in a major excavation since uh, 1986 until 2000 at Sipori in Israel. I had been writing about uh, this ancient uh, center of, of Jewish life, a very, really the, the most important city in in uh, the Galileo in the Galilee until uh, Tiberius took over for it. Um, major place where uh, a lot of the rabbinic writings uh, began to take shape. Right. And uh, we were talking about doing a, a, an excavation together in Italy. So we were on each other's radar. And as the state archaeologist, Nick, was brought in, is brought in whenever somebody wants to excavate. Right. And so that was the connection. Uh, the a representative from the head of the Jewish Federation in New London knows me, Jerry Fisher, and they were both on the site together. And they said, well, why isn't Stuart here? And they called me in. And I really wasn't expecting very much of anything. I don't, I'm not a specialist in 19th or 20th century history, never mind American history or American Jewish history. I was totally aware of the agricultural settlements. I have friends who grew up on some of them here in Connecticut. Uh, all baby boomers, all mm. born uh, pretty much after World War II. And I grew up in New Jersey, so I was aware of the uh, farms in southern Jersey as well. Uh, so there were, they were, you know, there was something of interest to me, uh, right. local history, and as, a, as somebody who works at State University, we're certainly attuned uh, to this kind of stuff. Right. Uh, but I really didn't know what to expect. And then they brought me to the site, and I, the mix of things just wasn't resonating with me. I was just finishing a book on uh, ritual immersion, ritual bathing practices, and ritual purity uh, in ancient Israel. Right. That's coming out this year in the fall, correct? Yeah, it'll be out in the fall. And um, they took me over to the 
synagogue remains. A synagogue actually was standing until the 1970s, at which time it had burnt down. It was occasionally used uh, by the descendants and families, relatives, neighbors uh, on high holidays. And, um, uh, you know, it really wasn't much to see. It was a, it's a, a foundation. And I looked at Nick, I remember distinctly saying, uh, well, this is your kind of archaeology. I'm sure there's something we could do here. Right. And it wasn't all that excited. And then he said, well, let me, let me take you to the Shochet's house. And this is Nick Bellantoni <laughs> telling me about the Shochet's house. I love moments like that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> he walks me down the hill, and I see there are walls. So already I'm getting a little bit more interested, a little bit more curious. And I look over the southern wall uh, down into what was the basement of this building. This, again, there's no building standing. Right. And I look down, and I look up at, at the, the my friends there who are, and I just, I just couldn't believe what I was saying. I said, "You didn't tell me you have the pool." Right. Uh, <laughs> Which I thought was such a great quote. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I really, I was just, I just didn't, wasn't expecting this at all to find a mikvah sticking out of the ground. And um, more to the point, it, it just reminded me of uh, stone mikvahs and ritual baths from ancient Israel uh, that I'm writing about. And so I just looked at them and, and uh, I said, you know, the only uh, pool, that, uh, the only mikvah I know that's been excavated in the United States from anywhere near this period, and I was assuming at the time was from late 19th, early 20th century, uh, was one from uh, Lloyd Street in Baltimore. And uh, that one you could see from 1840s or so was excavated by uh, Esther Reed and and I just looked at them and I said, but, that, but, that, but that's Baltimore. This is Chesterfield. Right. What on earth is this doing here? Right. I mean, I will tell you that my dad was born in Torrington, Connecticut, which, is, ah, which okay. has always been a family joke. Uh-huh. Because, um, you know, who, what Jew was born in Torrington, Connecticut? Right. So that when I read this article that there was a mikvah in old Chesterfield, Connecticut, it almost made, like, my dad is not, uh, unfortunately, hearing the show right now. He's in Israel, and I'm sure he's in bed. But okay. I, I'm sure he's going to say, see, not so funny anymore, is it? But right. but it just spoke to the expansion of Jewish life in the late 1800s. And as as that um, community developed, like, like many others did, as a spill-off, so to speak, of the Lower East Side boom, where housing was no longer available and people needed to go somewhere else. And so they, quote, quote for lack of a better expression, they divested their interests by going to other areas and building Jewish communities in small rural agricultural um, spaces. And the, so the, this mikvah just highlights the extent of their religious practice and their religious commitment beyond a shochet's house. Correct. And and uh, just to get a little bit of background, um, it was more than just um, this, this was kind of an experiment. Uh, that's how like that's how historians like to refer to it. I've noticed in the literature in in uh, American Jewish life. But really, it was prompted by uh, Baron de Hirsch, who was a very prominent philanthropist right. at this point in time, uh, who really seeded the money uh, both to New Jersey uh, and Connecticut start up their, their agricultural communities. There were some also in uh, Argentina, Canada, Israel. Uh, but his idea really was that uh, you, you couldn't settle all the Jews in the cities. And right. so this was an attempt to, to resolve that. And a lot of the Jews come here realized the Lower East Side wasn't going to work for them, Brooklyn, elsewhere. And so they said, well, let's try this. Uh, so it's really a halutz experience, really a, a pioneer <laughs> experience here in the United States and in the Americas, I should say, more pro- properly. Uh, so, so that's that's really the background. Now, the other side of this, which I was well aware of, was that uh, the impression you get, again, from the historians who've written about this period, is that these um, settlers, both in uh, southern Jersey and in Connecticut, weren't particularly religious. Right. Um, now, you know, that's something of interest to me, but uh, it's particularly of interest to me because in writing about the ancient mikvot uh, in Israel, um, I'm particularly interested in, in what people were really doing, how they built these ritual baths, uh, right. uh, what relationship the, my, my, 
my uh, second book was about the relationship of the rabbis to society. And so uh, what we unearth sometimes uh, doesn't exactly look like what we're expecting from the sources, not sometimes, I should say, very often. Uh, so there's a, um, a film, and I think a book called The Land Was Theirs, which is about uh, the New Jersey settlement. Mm. And, if, and if you watch that, it's a wonderful film, by the way, uh, you'll find out that uh, the, 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 these, again, people, these are people who actually live there or grew up there and so forth, uh, in Woodbine, uh, Alliance, other places in South Jersey. And uh, they'll, they, they readily tell you that it, when it came time to start a sh- shuls, uh, they did so, and uh, the imp- implication is that it was largely for social reasons uh, and to educate the kids to some extent and to preserve some of the tradition. But in the literature written about this period, um, you hear uh, that many of these were uh, socialists or, or uh, not particularly religious. Right. And that was the impression I had in Conne- for Connecticut, too. So that's really what threw me completely. A mikvah? Okay, so logically... Uh, I arrived at the conclusion that uh, the immediate conclusion, well, maybe the Shochet needed one. <laughs> you know, oh, good point. The Shochet okay. and his wife, otherwise they couldn't attract the Shochet. But right. that turns out to be entirely wrong. Uh, we, I have enough sources now to show that the women of the community were the actual ones who demanded uh, uh, that they have a, a, uh, a mikvah built. And so the only question remains as to exactly when this was built and uh, where we're still discussing that. Um, it's definitely pre-1910, and I believe it goes back to the origins of the community in 1891. It's really, it is really quite, um, it's quite mind-boggling. It's just, it it just speaks to uh, so many different things. But uh, one question I, I, I that I want to ask was, why is it so significant that this was not a tiled mikvah? Why is it so significant that this mikvah resembled more what we're used to seeing? Or not by we, I mean you, of course. Why you are used to seeing um, in ancient Israel instead of in more quote unquote modern mikvahs like you've seen at the turn of the century in the United States that were already tiled. Okay, so uh, let me back up again a little bit. I'm a sorry, so I do that a lot, <laughs> and so let me, let me just uh, include something that I should have said earlier, and I'll tie it all together here. Okay. Uh, one of the other things that were part of my immediate reaction was that I was thoroughly familiar with the literature from this period, um, and uh, you know, even though I'm not a historian, I take an interest in in in, in this stuff. And I was I after I, uh, my reaction, you know. What's this doing here? I think I went on to explain that um, the rabbis of the time uh, were very concerned about the demise of these practices in right. the United States, and that one of the things, particularly Rabbi Eloi, who was a prominent rabbi from the 19th century, uh, and others were concerned about, and then uh, Rabbi Prell uh, of you know the Tais Meshpacha in in, uh, in uh, a predecessor actually of uh, Elizabeth. You know, Elizabeth, yes, and uh, he had written, uh, this was later, in about 1920 or so, uh, about, uh, you know, his concern about uh, the demise of these practices. And, and the thinking was that a lot of this had to do with the aesthetics of the mikvah, uh, as well as, you know, being out of step with American life uh, or the perception, uh, the rise of more uh, uh, progressive or liberal tendencies in, uh, in American Judaism and so forth. Uh, so one of the major concerns was the aesthetic. So people and, were the I'm not I'm sorry to interrupt, but the rabbis were concerned that women stopped going to the mikvah because they weren't pretty. Yes, that that was their 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 thinking. In other words, that wasn't the only reason. The, wow. The, the, the concern was uh, um, the 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 attractiveness and the. Um, the hygienic aspect of right, it. Right, of course. Okay. Of course. Uh, in fact, there were in New York City alone, uh, in the Lower East Side, they were using uh, the Turkish baths, uh, the plunge pools and the Turkish baths, uh, which is something we have in Talmudic right. sources, by the way. Right. Not Turkish baths, but uh, but, <laughs> but, but the use of, of uh, communal plunge, baths, yeah. Plunge pools in, right. in in the bathhouses. So right. we know this goes back to antiquity. And in fact, there are now. Uh, uh, Ritual baths that have been identified from ancient bathhouses in Israel. So, am I to am I led to believe then that the that the reason that this is significant that these walls were untiled and that this is what they built themselves was that 
twofold. Number one, the extent of their religious commitment was that that a ugly mikvah, so to speak, would not be something to deter them from continuing to use a mikvah as part of a very important Jewish family ritual. And that B, if I can take it one step further, that if it was the women who demanded that there be a mikvah in the first place, then they are saying the aesthetics don't matter. The fact that we have one is what's important. I I think the latter is definitely true. I think that uh, male rabbis writing uh, about their perception of why people are are not using the ritual baths uh, may not have been entirely correct. In other words, uh, I think it was... It was tied in, perhaps, and I think they they thoroughly understood this with the times, uh, modern life, uh, perception of these ancient rites in America and so forth. But, uh, you know, I think there was also perhaps a a sexist side to this, and and I I can't say for sure. This is a hunch. I have to look at the the sources once again uh, and and thinking that, well, they're not not attractive enough. Um, But... uh, Clearly, the women of, of Chesterfield weren't entirely concerned with the, the attractiveness, but I want to add a caveat. Okay. So we started excavating, and you know we put together this field school right away, because over coffee right after they showed me this thing, <laughs> I said to Nick, we do this this summer if we can get the students, and right. he said, absolutely. So we did last summer, and uh, we waited to break the story till now for a number of reasons. But... Um, um, we start all, all that was sticking out from the ground was a wall and the first step, and I couldn't see much beyond that. I didn't understand how the water was coming to this or how it was drained and so forth. Uh, and uh, as the students started uh, working down the stairs very methodically, as we do in, in archaeology, uh, they tell me they're finding wood. Okay. Right, which was also a controversial, right, was something you noted also. Yeah, and I said, wood on the stairs, are you sure? And he said, absolutely. And I said, well, well, I don't want to hear much more about wood, all right? <laughs> and the next day, they're finding more wood. And they said, well, what's, what's the issue? I said, well, there are Talmudic sources about wood on the floors and, on, on, and uh, later sources about on the stairs of, of mikvah. And it, it's, not, it, it's a halachic issue. It's an issue of, of Jewish law right. that I'm aware of. And I'd be very surprised if you're going to find wood on the bottom. Well, they get to the bottom. And sure enough, there's wood. There's wood. And it turns out that the entire mikvah is lined with wood. Okay? Uh-huh. So here's one of those things that, uh, right. uh, you know, you, you think you know the sources, and, and then what always happens in archaeology, and my years of experience working with archaeologists, um, is that real life uh, sometimes doesn't really reflect exactly what you're reading about in sources that are oftentimes theoretical. Right. And it turns out that, uh, well, there's a, there is a literature on, uh, and it's a g- large discussions about using uh, wood in mikvah, and there was a, a uh, custom coming from Eastern Europe to use wood to line mikvah. Now, right. I'm not going to get into all the Jewish legal problems of, right. of doing this, right. but, it, but it, it is totally kasher from a point of view of, of, of these sources. And the settlers in this area in Old Chesterfield were from Russian descent. That's correct. Right. Correct. So the caveat here is that uh, is that somebody was concerned perhaps about the aesthetic. I think really it was also because uh, of, uh, well, you could you could slip on, on concrete. You could, right. it, it gets cold in here in, <laughs> in, here in, Old in right. New England. These, these homes weren't heated. Right. But I have to tell you, in the w- last week of the excavation, and I don't think this was in the press, uh, the students uncovered the furnace in the room, oh. and we have and we have records going back to this to the early 1900s from the shul um, uh, that tells us exactly what what it costs to use the mikvah and to warm up. Really. Uh, to warm up the room, yeah, and the water, yes. That is that is fascinating, Dr. Stuart Miller professor of Hebrew history and Judaic studies at UConn and also the director, the academic director of UConn Center for Judaic Studies and Contemporary Jewish Life, the chair of Hebrew and Judaic studies section in the Department of Literatures, Cultures, and Languages joins us on That's Life discussing this um, unbelievable, unbelievable uncovering of a mikvah in eastern Connecticut dating back to the late 1800s. Something I also want to mention, by the way, 
uh, a couple of other things with with a finite amount of time left is that with as a person who has um, taken a trip on birthright and brought Jews to Israel for the first time and who has brought Jew, Jewish women to a mikvah for the first time, one of the things that we are encouraged to to tell these women is that, oh, this mikvah is gorgeous. And, oh, this mikvah is stunning. Oh, it looks like a spa. And and I hear that also about mikvah oat in the New York general area or even in Florida, in Miami, where a friend of mine had said to me, um, oh, you did, if you drive by the new mikvah, you're not even going to recognize it. It looks like a spa. So I'm not going to – I, I – there's a part of me that says that while you one person somebody may say oh these these you know these rabbis were being chauvinistic and that women were going to be materialistic about going to mikvah about the beauty of the mikvah etc it speaks to that over a hundred years later because people are designing mikvah oat to make sure that they are as aesthetically pleasing as possible so that the experience itself is something that that they maintain as opposed to something that they so disdain that they stop doing it. I, I think that's uh, right, spot on. I yeah. I, that I, is the perception today, yes. Right. And by the way, and just something else I just want to also mention um, as part of the discovery in Old Chesterfield is that it wasn't just a shochet house and it wasn't just the shul and it wasn't just the mikvah. There's also a creamery. Correct. Explain, explain to me why there's a need for a creamery attached to a shul. The Shochet house, the <laughs> okay, so house we have I understand. Here are three buildings, a okay. synagogue, remains of a synagogue, remains of the, the, the house of the Shochet, uh, which contains the mikvah, a creamery. Uh, there was probably, there, there, we also have pictures that indicate there was a barn. Um, the farms run up and down uh, Route 85 uh, here in Connecticut uh, on, on both sides. And uh, this is, we're talking about a mile stretch. And the farmers, uh, you know, had cows, and basically they needed a creamery um, to, to sell the, pro- the product. Uh, the creamery purchased the milk and made butter and shipped it off to Long Island and, and elsewhere uh, out of New London. Uh, I said also, uh, so the creamery was, was a vital part of the, of, the, of the life here, and I have actually a heart-rending letter that I uncovered at the Historical Society here in Connecticut um, which apparently nobody knew about a Yiddish letter that uh, reveals the the feelings uh, uh, around uh, I think it's around 1912 or so when there was a there was a chance the community was going to lose the creamery they couldn't support it anymore and and they looked at this as the the lifeline um, but actually what happens is um, the creamery uh, eventually would have a bit of competition. Uh, because what was happening was, you know, these, these weren't very good farms, and the, this is not very good farmland, and you right. couldn't produce very much on them. Farther up in the Ellington area, you have, um, in Rockville, you have uh, tobacco farms here in Connecticut, which some Jews owned. Uh, huh. But, but uh, down in Chesterfield, you, you, as, as I was reading a newspaper article from 1897 this morning, uh, <laughs> the only thing you could raise is rocks. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, here they have um, uh, a farm in which they they had their cows. You know, a handful of cows per farm. Uh, eventually, some of them produce uh, eggs. Also, there were poultry farms. And uh, New Jersey and Connecticut, by the way, were both known for their eggs. Uh, one of them was selling the white eggs, and one of them was selling the brown eggs, by That's the way. Great. There was, there That's great. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I think we were the brown eggs. But anyway, <laughs> um, at any rate, uh, the creamery got competition because there, there were borders coming up from, from New York. This was kind of the Catskills of Connecticut. I loved um, that term, by the way. I love that term. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and uh, and that's what that's what's happening. And the the the, the people who were taking in borders were purchasing uh, the milk uh, for the borders, and that 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 uh, led to a bit of competition. The creamery eventually uh, went out of business, became an inn. Um, so in the late oh, 1890s, Chalav Yisrael milk was being produced <laughs> in Old Chesterfield, Connecticut. Yeah, I guess it was. Yeah. I, I I mean that also when 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 I read about that letter that you had mentioned, um, the Yiddish letter, it, it it sort of spoke to me one of two ways. Number one, were they upset about losing their lifeline, their their financial lifeline, or two, were they that were they that serious 
or I shouldn't say serious because that uh, were they that um, devoted that they were so committed to Hall of Yisrael that they were afraid they were going to lose it for that reason? Well, I, I don't know if it was so much uh, Hall of Yisrael, but I think it was really. I mean, certainly it was produced by Jews, but I think I think the concern was uh, really that that. It, it was the lifeline, but I don't have the letter in front of me, but I'm going to be reading it tonight. At the, <laughs> it's the Historical Society of Greater Harper, the Jewish Historical Society, where I'm presenting. And uh, it really is a heart-rending letter, which, which actually alludes, so this directly answers your question uh, in a different way, and that is that it directly alludes not just to the creamery, but what the creamery represented, which was the lifeline to their way of life. Ah, Okay, and they say that specifically. There's no question. They allude to the they allude, They refer to the synagogue and to the mikvah in this particular letter. So this is. L- let me. Um, this is a very important statement just to get in. Uh, I'm sure if anybody's listening who who comes from the later stages of these communities uh, in New Jersey or Connecticut, they say, "What's what's he talking about? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, we had women going to mikvah and they were using the brooks and all of that." And if you're from Colchester, Connecticut, you'll probably write in and tell them, we had a mikvah here too, yes. In fact, I know there were actually two mikvahs in Colchester. But these are later stories. Okay, mm. my, I have friends who grew up in New Jersey and, New York, and here too. They're all baby boomers. They're all products of refugees. Um, the Chesterfield, Connecticut, if you look in the Jewish Encyclopedia from the early 1900s, 1904, 1905, or whatever it was, uh, when it talks about agricultural communities, this is one of the first it speaks wow. of, because wow. it was the first in Connecticut. And the point is we have a snapshot here of a period from 1890 to, 19, to early 1930s of a community that was in and out and one of the first agricultural communities. And now what I'm saying is that I am fairly certain that this was one in which uh, religious life was quite vibrant. Wow. That is, that's, that's a very important distinction to make. And, and, it seems to me that this story is just going to continue to unfold for 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 a while now. If I'm if I if I'm not mistaken, I'm quite sure uh, Nick and I are talking about another season, and uh, wow. we're hoping uh, to have an exhibit. Uh, Nancy's working together with uh, our director at the Center of Judaic Studies, uh, Jeffrey Schulzen, who's also from New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> Everybody's on, uh, from New Jersey. People should yeah, know, by eventually. the way, I, I, Professor I, Miller started was raised in Newark, New Jersey, just like Nahum, and he attended Jewish yeah. day schools in Newark and Elizabeth. So, uh, yes, yes. New Jersey, born and raised. Yes. So uh, we're working on an exhibit. Um, Nancy Savin's working with her society uh, on a an exhibit which will be appropriately uh, beginning at the uh, Dodd Center at, on the Yukon campus, and uh, she hopes to take that on the road and move it across uh, various places in the country. Well, Professor Miller, I thank you so much for joining me. I look forward to hearing more as the excavation continues. Thank you so much, and uh, I hope we're back in the field uh, perhaps next summer. Oh, wow. Sounds exciting. Thank you so much. Great speaking to you. You too. Take care. You've been listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Miriam L. Wall. Thank you for making us part of your day. I'm going to quickly go through the lineup. Full afternoon of programming. We have something to talk about. Then we have an encore of Teen Spirit. We have Jewish Reaction hosted by Ellie Hagler. Following that, spin class. And Thursday Night Extravaganza starting at 7. Stunt show with Gorf at 8. Book of Life with Charlie Harari, and then an encore of Teen Spirit. Join Nahum tomorrow morning from 6 to 9 as he hosts JM in the AM, 91.1, and 91.9 FM, followed by Table for Two with Naomi Nachman. My worlds are colliding this week. Naomi has on Daniel Gordon to discuss next week's stunt show. And as a stunt, don't miss it. Don't miss Saturday Night Seagull, hosted by Avrami. 10 p.m. here on the stream, NahumSiegel.com. This show will be rebroadcast Sunday at 1 p.m. My thanks to to Avrami. Yael Lazen is off for the summer. I leave you today with David Gabe's Ha'aderet Vehamuna off of the Eretz Yisrael album. I know, I know, I know. I played David Gabe last week, but let's just say our trip to Israel in August, please God, could not come fast enough. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys.
ಹಾಕ 